Our Bibles are open to the uh, 14th chapter of the book of Deuteronomy this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 14, we're in a series of messages from this great and wonderful Old Testament book. And as you're finding your way to Deuteronomy 14, let me say welcome to all of our guests today. We're especially grateful that you're here this morning and would encourage you to complete a guest registration card if you've never done that before. Take it when church is over, back to the Next Step Center, give it to one of those fine attendants wearing the lanyards, and uh, they'll give you a gift just for being here today. We hope you'll come back. Let us know a little bit about yourself. We'd love to know you by name. And to those of you that are with us online, always a treat to have folks tuning in. We've done that ourselves in our family uh, over the last little bit and are grateful to be back in the house of God today. Thank you, by the way, for your many cards and gifts and flowers and statements of concern in the homegoing of Judy's mama. Uh, it was a great family reunion, and we look forward to the great day where there'll be an eternal family reunion. Amen. So thank you for your hospitality. Know that you're loved and appreciated very, very much. We come uh, this morning in our study of uh, Deuteronomy to the biblically important subject of God's people learning to live generously. Deuteronomy, of course, is uh, kind of the final call of the prophet Moses. Moses is nearing the end of his life, you know that. And as the second generation of the nation of Israel, post-Exodus, is preparing to enter the land that God had promised to them, the land of Canaan, this land flowing with milk and honey, Moses is preparing the people to take the land and to do it with integrity, not making the same mistakes the previous generation did. And because of their disobedience, they died thousands upon thousands of graves littering the Sinai desert because of their failure to obey the word of the Lord. Moses doesn't want these people to make the same mistake their fathers did. And so he gives us what we know as the book of Deuteronomy, which is really three sermons uh, bookended by a couple of historical statements. The three sermons that Moses gives, one of them deals with the past, one of them deals with their historical presence, that's the one, the, their historical present, that's the sermon that we're in now, and then the third deals with future events, things that can and should happen if God's people remain faithful to him. And up to this point, of course, Moses has emphasized several key things, namely that the people of God learn to fear the Lord, that they learn to consistently love the Lord, that they learn to consistently obey the Lord. Here in Deuteronomy 14, he reminds the people of another critical component of right worship. Not only do they need to fear the Lord, love the Lord, obey the Lord, serve the Lord, they need to learn the importance of giving to the Lord as well. Did you know that God has always declared that generosity is to be a hallmark of his people? And it doesn't matter if we're talking about the Old Testament people of God or the New Testament people of God, known as the church. God has always been a giving God, and aren't you grateful for that? For God so loved the world, he what? He gave. 
his one and only Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God is the God who owns the cattle, the Bible says, on a thousand hills. He is a God who supplies all of our need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. And here in Deuteronomy 14, Moses reminds the people of Israel that as they prepare to enter this promised land, they need to learn two critically important components of worship, namely learning to honor God and learning to honor others with their material possessions. As we couch it in our title today, they needed to learn to live with soft hearts and open hands. Let's take a look at our text this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 14, beginning in verse 22. Let me invite those of you that are able to stand as we honor the reading of the holy, inspired, inerrant word of the living God. <clears throat> you ready to read? Say amen. amen. Verse 22. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord your God, in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. And if the way is too long for you so that you're not able to carry the tithe, when the Lord your God blesses you because the place is too far from you, which the Lord your God chooses to set his name there, then you shall turn it into money silver literally, and bind up the silver in your hand and go to the place the Lord your God chooses and spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. And you shall not neglect the Levite who is within your towns, for he has no portion or inheritance with you. At the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, who within your towns shall come and eat and be filled that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. Father, <clears throat> today, thank you for your word. Thank you for your guidance, which comes from a heart that loves your people. We're grateful that you save us and then choose not to leave us alone to figure life out, but instead give us this eternal living word to guide us, to renew us, to strengthen us so that we may live in obedience which always brings about the powerful blessing of God to those who choose to follow Christ fully. Lord, guide us now as we unpack this important passage of Scripture and as we seek, like that generation then, to live with soft hearts and with open hands. For your glory, we ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen and amen. Thank you. You may be seated. <clears throat> now, 
No doubt, as we read through this passage of Scripture, you notice that there are some very important fundamentals of giving, of living with generosity, with soft hearts and open hands that Moses gives to the people then that are just as applicable today in our own community of faith here at Hillcrest. What can we learn about a life of giving as the covenant people of God then as now? Well, the first thing we notice is the plan for our giving, and God has a plan for personal Christian generosity. God's great giving plan is what's identified here as the tithe. He says in verse 22, you shall what? Tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. The tithe, of course, represents what we call proportional giving. And it really is beautiful because the tithe takes the guesswork out of giving. If this command and many others like it were not in the scripture, we'd all be left to try to figure out what, what, how do we define generosity in terms of how we live in the presence of God? How do we determine what is a generous amount of money in order to give for the work of the gospel ministry here and around the world? Well, the tithe takes the guesswork out of that, which makes it very, very helpful uh, as we read the passage of Scripture, most of us will recognize Malachi 3 as the most familiar statement in the Bible regarding the tithe. You know what it says, right? Bring all the what? Bring you all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Now, the word tithe, of course, is a word that means tenth. And so when God commands the tithe, he's giving us this proportional way of giving defined as the first tenth of a person's wealth measured in those days largely by agricultural produce, that tithe, that first tenth of the harvest of everything that was produced by that household was to be offered to God as an act of worship. Now, earlier in the law, the books of Leviticus and Numbers specifically, the tithe is first taught to the people of God, and it's described in those passages of Scripture as something that actually belonged to God, right? Which is why Malachi, at the end of the Old Testament, says not to tithe is to do what to God? Who remembers? It's to rob God. That's how he begins his teaching on the tithe then. Will a man what? Rob God. And immediately the people got defensive and said, well, no, how in the world have we robbed God? And Malachi is very clear, in tithes and offerings, because they were keeping for themselves what God had declared rightfully belonged to him. And don't miss out that in some years, the tithe was even more than 10%, wasn't it? Some years called for a double tithe. Did you notice here in this passage that we read just a moment ago that the Bible speaks of this annual tithe that they're to bring to the house of worship, but the Bible here also speaks of a local tithe in addition to the annual tithe on the third year and on the sixth year of the seven-year Jewish cycle. So out of every seven years, two of those years, year number three and year number six, involved a local tithe to support the local priest who served village by village, scattered all throughout the land of promise. So on those two years, an average family would have given 20%, a 20% tithe unto the Lord. And then there were the feast, Passover, tabernacles, etc. 
that were to be funded by the free will offerings of the people. So sometimes they would give 10%, sometimes 20, sometimes maybe even as much as 30% of their income in a given year. Now I know what many people argue, well that's Old Testament ceremonial law. That's the law that God gave to Israel. But let me just say, I still believe that the tithe serves as a foundational giving principle. It's not a law for God's people today, but it is an important giving principle for the people of God today. And can I just say this? Y'all listening, say amen. It makes zero sense, biblically or theologically, to try to make an argument that God's people should be less generous now living under grace than Jews were compelled to live under the law. That doesn't even matter. You're talking about living in the wake of a bloody cross and we're going to argue that we're free to live more stingy today than the people were compelled to live under the old covenant of God? No, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever, especially given the level of abundance that we enjoy today. Most of us here in this room could faithfully tithe to the Lord as an act of worship and you would never miss a meal. Isn't that right? You would not go to lunch today. You would not have supper tonight. You wouldn't have between meal stacks because you're a bunch of Baptists and I don't know how you eat. <laughs> Most of us could tithe. We would never not, we'd never have to sell our car. We would never not have closets bulging with clothing. We, we, we would tithe and never have to give away the dog because we couldn't afford it anymore. Never have to kick the cat out into the street. We wouldn't have to not be able to take a vacation. Most of us would still do that. As with most other things, giving and generosity is always a matter of priorities. Now, let there be no doubt, I'm a big believer in grace giving. But one thing we don't do as a church, no church should ever do it, is use grace as an excuse to be stingy. We should never use grace as an excuse for selfish or self-centered living. In fact, grace is a motivation to do more than the law requires last time I checked. Grace never lowers the bar. Grace always raises the bar. All you have to do is read the Sermon on the Mount to know that where Jesus says, okay, you want to talk about grace? You know what it was said about murdering, thou shalt not murder, but if you hate your brother in your heart, you're a murderer. Grace never lowers the bar. It always raises the bar. What about adultery? Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, don't commit adultery, but I say to you, if you think lustfully in your heart toward someone else, then you've just committed adultery. Grace never lowers the bar, Grace always raises the bar, and that's why the tithe for New Testament believers is what my friend James Ross calls basement-level giving. It's foundational. It's where we start, not where we finish. This is why Paul, when he teaches about giving in the New Testament in the age of grace, talks about becoming an excellent giving or learning to give with abundance, he says in 2 Corinthians 8, but just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, in our love for you, see that you also excel in this act of grace also. 
And this act of grace, of course, in that entire chapter and the next one that follows has to do with Paul's taking a free will offering to support the relief of suffering Christians in the land of Palestine because of an ever-present ongoing famine. He's talking about being an excellent giver. And so just apply that to your life and mine. And when it comes to living with soft hearts toward God and toward others and living with open hands, are you an abundant giver? Are you an excellent giver? That's the New Testament standard. So God's plan for giving is proportional giving. You don't have to guess about it. By means of what he calls the tithe, which even though we're not bound to as a matter of law, is still a very good starting point for believers who live by grace. Because grace reminds us, here's the thing, God doesn't just own the 10%, God owns every bit of it. God owns every bit of it. This is why if you want to be a New Testament giver, you have to change your way of thinking. It's not just about 10%. It's about what you do the 100%. Because all of us are accountable with how we use the 100%. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may give an account for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. And that includes how you use 100% of everything that by definition already belongs to God. This is why Proverbs 3 and 9 is a great summary statement where Solomon says, honor the Lord with your wealth. What can you say? You're doing that. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruit, circle that word first fruit, with the first fruits of all your crops, or as we would say in our culture and context today, with the first fruit of all your income. That, brothers and sisters, is the giving principle right there. Everybody tracking with me, say amen. Then I want you to notice, second, not only the plan for our giving, but the place of our giving. Because Moses defines that here for the people as well. Taking the guesswork out of it. Verse 23. And before the Lord your God, in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there. There you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, <clears throat> and the firstborn of your herd and flock. Now, what's the place that he will choose? What is that place that God would make his name dwell? Well, for the people of Israel living in the wake of these words, that would have been what we call the tabernacle, right? That was the portable tent-like structure that housed the Ark of the Covenant, the tablets of the Ten Commandments, several other articles that were in there. That would have been the place where all of the great utensils, the golden utensils used for worship, would have been set up. It was portable. It was movable. And so it went from place to place. It wasn't fixed like the temple later was there in the city of David, Jerusalem. The tabernacle moved around from place to place and from time to time. And this is what God says. When it comes time to give this annual tithe, you're to take it and you're to give it in the place where my name dwells. Now, when Malachi writes about this later on at the end of the New Testament, the temple would have been built by that time. There would have been a stationary place where the, place, where the name of God dwelt, where God's name was proclaimed and where God's name was made holy. And that would, of course, been the temple. And so Malachi says it in a different way than Moses, but the bottom line is the same principle. 
Malachi says, bring the whole tithe into the what? Into the storehouse, which was like a literal place attached to the temple complex there in Jerusalem. Bring the full tithe and tells them where to take it, into the storehouse, that there may be food in my, what? Say it out loud. In my house. That's right. So the point Moses is making here and the point Malachi later supports is that the tithe was to be offered at the house of worship. Somebody say amen. The house of worship. Now I'm often asked today as a pastor about the appropriateness of what I call scattering the tithe. Scattering the tithe hither and yon amongst a host of ministries and and organizations. And here's what I normally tell people. I think that there are a thousand and one different great Christian organizations that are worthy of the support of the people of God. I give to two or three of them myself, Judy and I do, but I don't give them the tithe. The tithe comes to the house of worship. I give over and above to those other ministries. And part of the reason, I mean, these are obviously biblical texts that support that, but The primary reason for that is because I believe that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is the repository of the gospel. The church is the place where the gospel is preached. The church is the place where ministry is to be uh, a springboard. The church is the place where discipleship happens. The church is the place where ministry is to be mobilized. And so because I don't see any of those other organizations, valuable though they are, Hear me clearly, valuable though they are, I just don't find them in the Bible. I tell you what I do find in the Bible, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, thou art Peter and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So I still believe in storehouse giving today. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Bring the tithe to the place that God will choose, the place which will make his name great. You see that, for example, in the book of Acts, where the Jerusalem believers sold their possessions and brought the proceeds where? To the church, laying them at the feet of the apostles. They brought them in the context of worship, and then it was appropriately distributed by the apostles in various kinds of of ways, And I think that's the best and the most biblical way for a believer to faithfully and generously give in the context of worship in our local churches. This is part of the reason I'm kind of old-fashioned when it comes to giving. I just think it's still a good idea to actually bring it in your hand and give it. Now, I know technology, and I give using technology, and technology is a great thing. And there are practical reasons why giving using technology is actually a more effective and efficient way for the church to have it done. Because it's like Ronco, right? Set it and forget it. And so I'm a champion. But I still think that there needs to be some way, even if you do that, where during a time of prayer or whatever, you set apart in your heart the reality that God is the source of everything you have. And that somehow, even if you've already given it before you ever came to church, you've designated it to the church, 
as a means of honoring God. And somehow in the context of worship, I think it's always great to honor God with that gift, even if you've already given it to God. Does that make sense? We need to figure out a way to continue to make giving the appropriate act of worship that it's supposed to be. And here's the thing, if it helps you to bring it, put it in one of those fancy glow-in-the-dark pink envelopes and drop it in the offering plate on your way out or whatever the case might be, do it that way. Just understand that giving is always an act of worshiping God, an act of honoring God, and an act that we perform through the place where God's name is magnified in worship here and around the world. That's the biblical model. Bring the tithe to the temple storehouse. Bring the tithe to the tabernacle of God, to the place where the name of the Lord dwells, where the, where the name of the Lord is worshiped and magnified and preached and adored. That's to be the place of our giving to God. Everybody tracking with me? This is God's plan for giving, the designated place of our giving, and then third, Moses teaches about the purpose of our giving. Why give it all? If it's all come from God, and God does not need our financial support, and he surely does not, then what's the purpose of our giving? Well, there are several that we could identify, but from this passage here this morning, I think that the spiritual discipline of giving serves a number of both theological and practical purposes for those who follow after Jesus Christ. One of those purposes is that through giving, we're reminded who's really in control and who's not. Amen. Giving is a reminder. Tithing is a reminder. When you tithe, it's a reminder where it all came from. Amen. It's a reminder of who holds it, of who scatters it. Not only that, it's a reminder of who can take it away. That ultimately, you're not the one who's in control. You're dependent upon a heavenly father to provide everything that you need. Why do you think it is that all throughout Deuteronomy, one of the most important words in Deuteronomy, and I think Pastor Jeremy Widely spoke on it two, three weeks ago, is the word remember. Remember. Remember, it's all over Deuteronomy. Make sure you don't forget. And then Moses quantifies what it is the people aren't supposed to forget, namely that their homes are not their homes. Namely, that their orchards are not their orchards. That God provided every bit of that to them. And the same God who gave it to them in a time of selfishness and disobedience is the God who can take it away as well. So giving is a reminder. It reminds us who's in control. It reminds us who's God and who's not. If you merge together the first part of verse 22 with the last part of verse 23, here's what you get. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that you may learn to what? Fear the Lord always. You see that? That's part of the purpose of our giving. We tithe so that we never get beyond who God is and who the ultimate source of our blessing actually is that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. That's uh, an important thing to remember when it comes to the discipline of giving because 
It helps us to remember how good God is. We sung about the goodness of God this morning and how gracious God has been with us. Along those same lines, the discipline of giving encourages us to celebrate God's goodness. Not only does it remind us who's in control, it's it's an encouragement to celebrate the richness of God and the goodness of God. Moses tells the people here, when you get into the land, bring the tithe of your produce to that place where the Lord's name is worshiped and magnified. Now, we get that. But then he tells them to do something that, at least regarding the teaching of the tithe in the Bible, is specific and unique to Deuteronomy. And that is, he says, when you bring it, go ahead and eat part of it. Somebody say amen. This is how we know they were Baptist Jews, right? Because they got only Baptist Jews get together and they actually celebrate giving the tithe. But that's what he tells them to do here. Verse 26, you shall eat there before the Lord your God and what? And what? And rejoice you and your household. So this, this passage reads like an invitation to a celebration, doesn't it? Because that's what it is. Scholars call it the annual tithe festival. If I proclaimed an annual tithe festival at Hillcrest, y'all would think I'd lost my ever-loving mind. We're just going to have a big tithing party at Hillcrest. You know why? Because in the 21st century, believers tend not to equate giving and rejoicing in the same sentence. We tend to approach giving with tight fists and sour faces. He's going to talk about giving again this morning. (laughs) Moses is telling them to give, and as they give, throw a big party. Because of the reminder that they could never outgive the giving hand of God. That God would always take care of them if they would simply stay faithful to him. So what's the teaching? When you give, give with joy. Try to smile when you give. Try not to be resentful. In fact, Paul will pick up on this theme in the New Testament and make it very clear. God loves what kind of giver? A, a cheerful giver. The word literally means hilarity. Hilaros. It's a transliteration. God loves a hilarious giver. I've yet to see too many Baptists horse laughing over the privilege of giving, but that's what you're supposed to do. Because it's, again, a reminder that God can be trusted. We don't have to be afraid to give. And so Moses invites them to give in a way that's celebratory, in a way that rejoices. And he invites them to come and be a part of the very bounty of God. Because we have this incredible opportunity that God gives us to participate in the ministry of the gospel. And speaking of that, that's a third purpose for giving. Third purpose for giving is to provide for the work of ministry. God gave the principle of the tithe because ministry and mission require an investment. I've said it many times. I want to say it here again today because it's a topic. See, this is the beautiful thing about expository preaching where we preach through biblical texts. Why are you preaching about giving today? Because it's in the Bible. Because that's where we are in our study of Deuteronomy. I'm just hiding behind the Bible today. Somebody say amen. Because if God talks about it, we're supposed to talk about it too. Isn't that right? And here's what's beautiful about it for me today. I can preach about giving when I don't have to preach about giving. We've just had the three record 
giving years in the history of our church. Three biggest giving years, 2020, which was stupid because that was a COVID year. The end of 2020, we'd given more money to the work of the ministry through the tithe and through free will offerings at our church than we ever have in our history. Had fewer people in the house giving more money. That's biblical economics is what that is. I can't explain that. 2021, we gave more than we did in 2020. 2022, we're on a pace, record pace, to give more than we did in 2021. So praise God, I can give to a church that kind of gets it when I don't have to give. I've never been in a position in a church I've ever pastored where I felt like I had to browbeat my church because they were lagging behind in terms of giving. And I count that as a tremendous blessing of the Lord. But this is an important concept because why do we give? We give because God invites us to partner along with him in taking the message of the gospel to our community and around the entire world. And here's the thing, I don't know how to do that without money. It takes money to send missionaries. It takes money to plant churches. It takes money to pay electrical bills for a sanctuary. It takes money to provide meeting places and parking spaces. You get it. I don't know how to do any of that without the faithful giving of the people of God. That's verse 27 here in Deuteronomy 14. And you shall not neglect the Levite who is within your towns, for he has no portion or inheritance with you, the Levites, of course, were one of the 12 tribes of Israel, but they were the priestly tribe. They weren't given any tribal allotment of the promised land because their allotment was God, right? Think of it that way. They were the servants of God, the preaching ministers, those who tended to the ritual things of God among the people of God. So they needed to be supported. And so God instituted the tithe in part to support the Levites in their ministry service to the people because they didn't have any land they could cultivate. They didn't have any land where they could have their own cattle and, 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 and set them to graze and things of that. They had to be supported. And God's people were to be the ones who did it. And not only were God's people invited to participate in the work of the ministry, that work of ministry not only involved the support of the ministry leaders, it involved the support of the poor and the underprivileged within the believing community, which, by the way, is the entire thrust of Deuteronomy chapter 15, the very next chapter, which is one running instruction after another about the responsibility and the importance and the how-tos of caring for the underprivileged within the people of God. God's people are not to be communistic. In fact, this kind of teaching assumes a certain social strata where some people were better off financially than others and others tended to struggle. That's assumed in every teaching about this kind of thing that you find in the Bible. But God goes out of his way to make clear that an identifying mark of the people of God is that the haves are to take note of and to take care of and to provide for the have-nots within the community of faith. Deuteronomy 15 and 7. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God has given you, 
You shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. Everybody hear me? Amen? So we have that responsibility. It's part of the reason why we give. I was just on an email chain last night where we were made aware of one of our members who had just lost the head of the household, going through some very hard times and a major time of transition. And I had some deacons and staff members going back and forth, carbon copying me on ways that we could engage with that family financially to help them over this rough spot. That kind of stuff happens all the time in the life of our church. And here's what the Bible says. That's the way it's supposed to work. That's the way it's supposed to work. When there's a need within the family of faith, the people of God are obligated to rise up and meet it. And that's part of the reason why we give. No church can do mission. No church can do ministry without the financial support of God's people. And here's the thing. When you give at Hillcrest, you touch a lot of bases through your giving. You support your pastors just like they did. You support our facilities just like they did. You support... As Brad said, disaster relief, ministry to a hard-hit community. You support benevolence to the poor. You support worship ministry, local ministry projects. Through the cooperative program that we participate in at the Southern Baptist Convention, through your giving, you help to support six Southern Baptist seminaries, six of the largest theological institutions in the entire world you help to support. Children's homes, new church starts, over 4,000 missionaries, full-time missionaries, serving uh, around the world through the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention. When you give through Hillcrest, you help to support every bit of that and so much more. When you bring the whole tithe into the storehouse of the local church here at Hillcrest. Y'all still tracking with me? Say amen. amen. One last thing I'll give you before we conclude. The plan for our giving, the place of our giving, the purpose for our giving. And then notice finally the promise associated with our giving. And one of the most significant promises associated with Christian generosity is that your generous heart and your open hand generates the powerful blessing of God right back to you. And see, this is part of the reason when a believer fails to give generously as an act of worship to God, not only are you robbing God, y'all still with me, say amen. You robbing you. You are robbing yourself. Following Jesus always requires sacrifice, but the sacrifice always brings about a blessing. Amen. Verse 29 gives the reason that the Lord, do all of this, bring the tithe, the annual tithe to the place where the tabernacle is on the third and the sixth year. Be sure that you bring the tithe locally to support your local preachers. And then Moses gives the rationale at the very end of the paragraph, so that the Lord your God may what? Say it out loud. May bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. Now, this is something that God wants you to see so important that, again, when you get to the end of the New Testament, you get to the Malachi 3 passage, 
Malachi says that God actually invites us to put him to the test here. Now, most of the time, testing God is not a good thing to do. You're not supposed to do it. But right here, God gives you an exclusion. He says, go ahead, put me to the test. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Paul will write to the Philippians and he'll say, no other church participated with me in this action of giving and receiving except you alone. And then what does he say next? And my God will supply all your need according to his riches and glory. Now, most of us memorized that when we were kids, or a lot of us did, but sometimes we can lose the context. What Paul is saying to the church there is, because you supported me, God will be a blessing to you. Because you have learned the value of giving and receiving, God will supply all your need according to his riches in glory. You don't believe that? Just ask the little boy who brought Jesus five loaves and two fishes. Somebody say amen. He gave it all to you. He didn't just say, hey, let me chop off a few fins and equal 10%. He gave him the whole sack. And then when it was all said and done, 5,000 men plus women and children, 15, 18, maybe 20,000 people. What's the most commonly asked question at a Pensacola restaurant today? Can I bring you a box? That little boy needed 12 boxes, large baskets to contain the fragments that were left over after nearly 20,000 people had sated themselves with all they cared to eat. Going back to Proverbs 3, here's how the statement concludes there. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then, circle the word then, then your barns will be what? Filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. Or if you like something simpler, just what Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, give and it will be what? Given to you the law of reaping and sowing, sowing and reaping. And never forget, that's a critical law of operation among the family of faith. You won't find that in any business textbook, but it's biblical economics. And it's a reminder that we have got a God that we can trust to take care of us when we're wise enough to listen, to hear, and to honor and obey him, often in ways that simply don't add up. For years, I carried a little card in my wallet where I carried cash. We don't carry cash much anymore. But every time I would pull out my wallet to open it up, I had a little scripture card in there that the top of which rose above the cash line. And it was a little verse from 1 Samuel chapter 2 that simply said, those who honor me, I will honor. Do you believe that? Do you believe God will honor you if you honor him? I had that statement for years where I carried my cash so that every time I went to spend a dollar, I would always be reminded of the priority of making sure 
that I gave the first fruits to God. And that's our challenge today, to honor God faithfully by learning to live and give generously with soft hearts and open hands toward God and toward others. This is the word of God and all God's people said.